This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I drummed those yellow nails on the table, and he was like, you got me. Okay, you got me. What do you want to know? Do you want to know about the first one? I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. What would it be like to interview a serial killer? New York Times bestselling author Jillian Lauren knows. Her haunting account of confronting Samuel Little is detailed in her book, Behold the Monster. It's an amazing story, and in our chat, Jillian explains how she convinced Little to tell her where one unknown victim was buried. I read an article that said that Samuel Little has been underreported because he's Black. Do you think that that's right? Do you think that this is some sort of racism within how we report on serial killers, that they are the typical white male? I think that is a piece of it. I think a larger piece of it is that because his victims were. You know, there's this concept that is not mine, but I use it and have sort of popularized it recently, being less dead. You know, that there are certain victims that are more dead and certain victims that are less dead. And victims that are less dead were the victims that were cherry-picked by Sam Little because he knew that people wouldn't listen, wouldn't care. Uh, they were largely women of color. Sex workers, not all of them, often addicted marginalized women who lived on the fringes of society who, you know, in a sense were considered less human already. And when a quiet, beautiful co-ed goes missing on spring break, that person is the most dead. It'll make all the front page news. Um, and even Sam's conviction for three murders in the 80s didn't get all that much coverage. It wasn't until this second round of jailhouse confessions where he really showed the world who he was, stopped professing his innocence, that he was exposed for who he was and anyone started to take interest. Well, let's do a very short summary of Samuel Little before we really can get into the victims and then your relationship with him. Sam Little was, as I have been told by his family, trouble from the day he was born, because I think a lot of we want to know their stories because we're looking for the whys. 
He was molested by a member of his family when he was four years old. He wound up in a reform school, the boys' industrial school, at the age of 13 for stealing a bicycle for 19 months. And it was a a famously abusive place. And he sustained a lot of head trauma there. He began boxing there. He wound up spending, you know, until he was 25 in and out of institutions, the Ohio State Reformatory, um, which you will know from Shawshank Redemption. So when he got out of there, you know, he wanted to be a pimp. He wanted to be a gangster. He wanted to be a fighter. He was a middleweight boxing champ in prison. And at that time, that was a funnel sometimes to the professional fights. And it turned out that he really just needed time to find his true passion, which was murder. How did that start for him? He's obviously out and free at some point. Is there some sort of a a trigger for him that changed everything? Like many serial killers, we'll hear, you know, an early interest in pornography or violent pornography. And in Sam's days, so we're talking about 1954, that he was going into dime stores and stealing true detective magazines. And he started to read about strangulation. Mm. And he got fixated on it and had always been fixated on necks since a, a little girl in his fifth grade class who was stuck up was mean to him and she had a long neck and he fantasized about strangling her, fantasized about strangling his teacher. And he was unable to have sexual relations without strangling a woman. It wasn't until he was almost 30 that he killed his first victim, but he had been thinking about it and building up to it all that time. Eventually, the girlfriend he was with, her name was Jean. She was 30 years older than him. They were together for 15 years, and she was a master shoplifter, and they drove around the country together, and she would shoplift And he would sometimes shoplift by day, but mostly she would to support them. And then he'd go out at night and solicit sex workers or, you know, a vulnerable woman at a bar. Ultimately, what is the number of victims? I know it varies based on what he says, what the police said, what he was convicted on. What are the number of victims that we think it is before you meet him? It was only three. He was convicted on three DNA hits, Mm -hmm. three case-to-case hits that the cold case special section in Los Angeles Police Department had a grant from the Department of Justice to screen cold case evidence. And they were screening evidence from the 80s, and that's how they got these hits. The number of official confessions that he gave to the FBI and local police jurisdictions is 93. The current number of solves is 62, and those were cleared or cleared by exceptional means. I had no idea, no idea. Let's go back. He's been convicted. And what happens? Do you see the story and you think, wow, I'm, this is an opportunity to get into somebody's head who really is depraved and to try to figure out what happened? And if you can help in any way, you write him a letter, reach out to him. And when did that happen? Well, the story found me. 
I was working on a mystery novel and I scored an interview with this famous police detective, Detective Mitzi Roberts, who, if anyone's a fan of Michael Connelly, and I think everyone's a fan of Michael Connelly, the character of Renee Ballard is based on her. She's a tough interview to get. She's a tough interview to do, too. And so I was interviewing her about some historical L.A. crimes, just about procedure, about her career in general. At the very end of the interview, as I often do try to end an interview on a high note, I said, what are you the most proud of? She said, I'm proud of them all, but I did catch this serial killer once. And I was like, I buried the lead, you know? <laughs> and she said, I'm not the one asking the questions here. And uh, and so she she told me about Sam how she found him, about the national manhunt for him, because he was transient, so they had to locate him. They didn't know if he was still out there killing or not. Uh, I was fascinated by both the forensics, the detective work that went into it, and also she told me that, you know, she'd gone on this cross-country trip talking to detectives who all thought they had cold cases that really looked like Sam's MO, that they could match up with him. I mean, the benefit of his enormous rap sheet is that it's often easy to tell he was incarcerated on that day, so it wouldn't have been possible. It's helpful in that way to know where he was, but she said that like she just wasn't able to really mobilize the effort. There are so few resources for cold cases. Who cares? There's no one advocating for these missing women. Many times there are no family members coming forward. There were transgender victims who were likely misgendered and, you know, their friends wouldn't have come forward because it was illegal. Yeah, so I thought this is an underreported story about a serial killer who possibly killed many more women and I could put some heat on it. You know, my own trauma really drove me a little bit, gave me that extra oomph when it was like, oh gosh, do I have to really try to get into a prison, figure out how, how do I get into a prison? And yeah. so I wrote him a letter. And then I applied to get my visitor's clearance, you know, and it takes months. So I exchanged these letters with him. And then the day came and I was able to go and visit him in prison. Set the scene for me about where this is happening and what it looks like. Is this a contact visit where you actually get to see him face-to-face -face or is there glass in between you or a mesh? I've done all three when I worked for the Innocence Clinic at UT. So, I mean, I've had contact visits with killers where you're there on the other side of a, a round table. What was your experience with him? I had no idea what to expect. First of all, all I knew, I, I knew a couple of scumbags who had done some time at California State Prison, Los Angeles. So I called them and they said, you know, you'll never get an appointment. Get there at six in the morning, wait online. They start letting the cars in at 930 and, you know, you'll get a number and then wait and uh, bring quarters because you're not cool if you don't bring quarters. And all you can have is quarters in a, in a clear bag. Quarters, key fob, and your glasses prescription, and some photographs. What? Okay, now you have to explain all of that except the key fob and probably the photographs. Well, you can, because in order to bring in glasses or anything that, you know, I'd have, I have to show my prescription. 
Oh, wow. Okay. What about the quarters? Well, the quarters are for the vending machines. So so the answer is it was a contact visit. And that is not what I was expecting at all. No. When I, you know, they're like, just go to B Block. Uh, okay. So I walked through the California desert. It is 110 degrees in the shade out there. It is, hmm. you know, there's a real feeling of biblical kind of punishment to this prison, you know, mile high fences with concertina wire and the guard towers and the big cages you walk through. All of that I was expecting, but I was not expecting to walk into a room where there were just tables and chairs and families sitting there like, you know, inmates holding their babies and, you know, in an area for the kids to play with Legos and a photo booth and vending machines all around, microwaves. Mm -hmm. I was really surprised. I had fully expected the, you know, like glass, you know, hand on the glass with the phone. And there was that in the corner. Um, but they always put me front and center. I was also always being recorded. Was that the case for everybody or just in this case? Um, it's the case for everybody. Everyone's always being recorded. There's, you know, 19 cameras in that room. In this case, I didn't know that I had inserted myself into the middle of a federal investigation. So just as cops, federal, Texas Rangers, local cops are about to try to crack this guy, this journalist shows up. I think the Texas Ranger, James Holland, who is, you know, one of the main players in the current, you know, Sam Little investigation that's still ongoing. So Sam Little sits down across from you. You have a contact visit, which was terrifying. No, he doesn't sit down. He's already sitting. He's in a wheelchair. Oh, yeah. I was looking at the door uh, that other inmates were coming in and out of, but there must have been like a special door for his disability because he rolled up behind me. Oh, wow. Okay, so he had been convicted of three. Had he confessed to any others at this point? Well, there were attempted murders that, you know, got pled down to kidnapping and assault okay. in San Diego. He was acquitted in Florida, in Alachua, Florida, for the murder of Patricia Mount because they said there was like a lack of physical evidence. Um, and then there was a failure to indict by a grand jury for the murder of Melinda LaPree in Pascagoula, Mississippi. So um, he had never confessed mm -hmm. to anything. He always just said, you know, DNA doesn't prove that I did anything. It just proves that I was there. Also, there was so much evidence destroyed there. You know, he, he murdered in the South and a lot of that evidence was destroyed during Hurricane Katrina. You know, he professed his innocence until the moment that he didn't. What is his demeanor? Is he aloof? Is he friendly? What's he like? Oh, he's friendly. It was 78. But, the, you know, my feeling about him was like that he looked like a ghost. Hmm. There was just an, an absence to him immediately. And he said, ooh, we, you're my angel. Come to visit me from heaven. God knew I was lonely, so he sent you to me. And from there, it was transaction after transaction for years with him. Did you think of yourself as his friend at all and confidant? Or, I mean, what was the dynamic? I, I mean, the dynamic was, you know, I felt like I was at war. But that war looked a lot like friendship. 
there was, you know, a rapport I had to establish with him. These people aren't a joke. And it's not a TV movie of the week. So I knew, like, just don't go into a room and start lying to him. Mm -hmm. It took me being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to tell him the truth in order for him to start opening up to me. And, you know, at the end, I think he was pretty much telling me the truth to the best of his ability. What were the things that you were telling him about you? I told him anything he asked. Well, I talked about my kids and, you know, my meatloaf and gave him what I like to think of is a window into what it's like to actually be human. Hmm. And he would pretend to sort of understand that and want to know that. And he had, he had advice about parenting. Um, but, you know, in his fantasy life, if he had just met the right woman, you know, he said to me, if, if I had just met you, I would have been a whole different man, you know, and we'd have mm. kids. So, you know, he had this really positive self-concept and, you know, he had he'd been wronged by the world. He was the victim. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Catherine Ramsland and I have talked about that, the forensic psychologist, where she says people with psychopathy, oftentimes it's a poor me, the serial killer even. Oh, yeah. BTK, she said it was every time she interviewed him, he was lamenting when things would go wrong, not in just in his life, but with the murders. And it's as if that was normal, like, well, shit, I just got a parking ticket. She said it was like that. It was like, I can't believe this happened. Mm -hmm. He had that attitude too, Sam Little. Absolutely. I mean, when you say, like, I got a parking ticket, I, I have a great example. I had a conversation with him where he said, you know, all sins are equal. I'm forgiven. He, he believed, you know, he was right with Jesus. He was saved. He was forgiven. Thought all you needed to do was ask. Every time he killed somebody, he asked to be forgiven, and he was forgiven. That's St. Paul. That's the Bible. And I was like, I don't agree with you. Hmm. And he said, that's Jesus. That's the Bible. And I said, you know, I think even there's a hierarchy in the Bible. Um, and he goes, no, killing is no different from stealing a cookie from the cookie jar. Wow. I was like, well, there are like the Ten Commandments. So— Let's say one, number one. And he couldn't get it. He didn't even know the first commandment. And it's just like, Jesus is not your apologist. Hmm. But it's complicity bias, right? Like he found justification for what he wanted. He wanted and he took. There was no question that that was what he deserved and that God made him that way. God, you know, I said, well, it sounds like you were lonely. I said, no, I was hungry. I didn't ask to be born liking cake. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What did he say his motivation was? Could he articulate anything at all about what was going on in his screwed up mind during all of this? Love. Ugh. You know, he said, I, you know, everyone has it wrong about me. I don't hate women. I love 
women. All I ever wanted them to do was cry in my arms. And then, you know, and then they snub me. Then they turn away from me and then they turn their noses up, you know, and they're snobby bitches. Hmm. Was he enamored with you, do you think? No, I don't. I think he didn't want to be alone. I think he wanted a friend and, and, and he wanted a journalist. And then, you know, I think by the time he started confessing, I don't think it was his impulse. His impulse was attention. I mean, you know, he had all these detectives coming, you know, bringing him oranges from Florida, bringing him barbecue from Kentucky, just flattering, flattering, flattering him, getting these confessions out of him, trying to match their cold cases. He was having the time of his life. Yeah. He was getting McDonald's milkshakes. He was getting to talk to this journalist. He was just really having a good time. But then he started to feel the effects of the fame, get the fan letters and people paying for traces of his hand. Ugh, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And, you know, once he started to get that, then he started to really enjoy it and play to it and start to get into the ego place where he was just like, I did this thing, you know, like I did the most in the world. I was the best, you know, I did this in the shadows. No one, they just thought I was a petty thief. And the whole time I was a murderer, I fooled them all. How does the first confession to you happen? And then the rest just spill out? Yeah. Once the dam broke, I mean, it it was always a back and forth and he would mess with me. But, you know, how the first confession happened was, you know, I'd been sitting with him like in total for over six hours. And I was just like, this is it. If he keeps bullshitting me, I'm I'm out. Like, I don't have this kind of time. I'm missing my kid's soccer game. You know, I'm not going to s- sit here and listen to how innocent he is and how they they done him wrong. He started to tell a story about this woman and get kind of lost in his own mind. And he stopped himself. And he said, I want a TV. And I said, I want things too. (laughs) And he's like, are you going to get me a TV? And I was like, I I don't know, am I? And he was like, he drummed those yellow nails on the table. And he was like, you got me. Okay, you got me. What do you want to know? Do you want to know about the first one? And then he just started this real like incantation of murders. I mean, it was like 13 that first day. Wow. I was, you know, I was just keeping my eye on the ball at that point. Um, I was like, there is no room here for sentimentality or horror or shock. Just remember every single thing he says. Remember every single thing he does. Did he know everybody's name? He knew almost no one's name. Because they were anonymous to him, okay. Yeah, I mean, he didn't spend enough time. The murder that I solved from bottom to top was a woman named Alice, and he knew her name. He remembered her name because he thought it was a pretty name. And that was actually what one of the things that helped us solve that case. So tell me what happens with Alice, when it happens, and where, and all of that. So in the middle of this nationwide investigation, we're hit with... COVID, Black Lives Matter protests are happening. Cold cases got 
really put to the side for a while. And I just had all the confessions and all this information. And I just decided to start really exploring them in depth one by one, just in the same way I was exploring these women's lives, you know, by meeting their families, Mm -hmm. by walking in their footsteps. So I began to, you know, follow his confession. Like he gives very specific directions that he drove. And if you're not in Los Angeles, none of this is going to make sense to you, but I can just say that basically he was saying he left the body under an underpass um, on a street that was on its way to the beach, except that was a north-south street. And here the beach is west. Mm. It's the east-west streets that go to the beach. You don't get more west than this beach. You know, I, I found the place he picked her up. I found the liquor store she went, and I could not find the place that he said he dumped the body. And I just started thinking about things that didn't often gel in his confessions. And one of those was how long he drove, because he drove so much. I mean, his cars were where he killed. He drove from one city to another, you know, almost every day, if not every three days. Um, He was always on the move. So he had a weird concept of driving and time. And also, this is when he was on crack, when his mind started to get a little more addled. Hmm. And it was possible that he took a turn he didn't remember. And he said he was going to Dominique College. And then it started to occur to me that, you know, everything was right about it, except if you took this one turn, you'd be going to Long Beach. Long Beach is south from here. It's not the beach. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a town called Long Beach. And in this town, there's a college called Cal State Dominguez. Once I broadened the scope of where I was looking, I found some articles that seemed to match his confession. And I went to the place and confirmed the details. And then I called Detective Rick Jackson. I really thought that I had enough. I I just condensed that. I mean, that case took me probably six months. Wow. Because he didn't didn't always want to talk about it. Um, it. It was a lot of me going back to him and saying it couldn't have been this. I called Detective Rick Jackson, who is the original template for the Harry Bosch character in the HBO show. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's retired now, and he's sort of a mentor of mine. It's always good if you can have a cop call for you so you don't sound like the crazy person calling the tip line. You know, like I solved, I solved a murder. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he was like, give me, give me a minute. And he called Long Beach and he called me back in 20 minutes. And he was like, you sitting down? You know, yes, they have this case and it is still open. Hmm. And uh, the victim is, victim is identified and her name is Alice Denise Duval. Wow. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I was like, well, you know, I mean, I know that doesn't confirm it. It doesn't. He's like, you know, it pretty much does, kiddo. Like, you solved a murder. Uh, I'm very close with her family now. It was just a cold case, right, at that point. Mm -hmm. Did they do any DNA? Yes. And then, of course, yeah, I mean, you know, when I say solved a murder, then I always have to clarify, I can't solve a murder. I'm not a detective, but that I did walk into the Long Beach Police Department with, you know, and give them all the information. 
the drawings I had, the articles, the overhead maps, the historical overhead maps, all that, and the confession. And um, then they were able to run a YSTR DNA and they got a partial and they cleared the case. What was Sam Little's reaction when you told him this, that, well, I took your information and I went and now you're connected to this case? Were you able to tell him that? Yeah, I was on the phone with him. Did he freak out? What was his reaction? He said, he was like, you did good. I think you did good, honey. Oh, gosh. You did really good. What was that? What does that mean? Is that he's trying to be sort of a father figure to you and bolster you so you'll continue to speak with him? Or did he want to help, really, in a twisted way? No, he wanted he wanted all the benefits of helping. I mean, it's not like he wanted to help because he cared about the victims or their families or— He wanted recognition. He wanted that recognition. And also, he wanted to be seen as a good guy who wanted to help. <sighs> So this is one case. Over the span of how long, how many people did he confess to killing, to you specifically? Well, there was a point at which the Texas Rangers asked me if I could back off my conversations with him about the murders because it was such an intense investigation. And, you know, he could tell a wingnut story. Mm -hmm. But if he tells a wingnut story to me, and then I call in with it, you know, then that just gives them a whole bunch of other details they have to investigate if they think they've already got it. They were like, you you know, don't contaminate the investigation, yeah. you know, by solving these yourself. You know, so there, there was a time that I did back off it when it was during the really heavy confessions. So, you know, I would say I got probably 36 or 37 detailed confessions out of him. I mean, that's amazing. Is this something he would have done with anybody or any journalist who would have given him the time and the patience to sit there and listen to him eventually? Or do you think it was something between the two of you that made him feel valued, whether it was a value for you? You know, your value was not his wonderful stories. The value to you was getting answers for victims, helping law enforcement, and of course, the book. Yeah, and, and understanding, trying to understand, you know, how we're, we're always trying to understand these egregious and aberrant people who seem, you know, inhuman. You know, he did have great stories, but yeah, I was doing this to keep him talking. I was doing this to get the book. I was doing it to get the end of the story. I was doing it because at this time, by that time, I, you know, I was so committed to the victims. It just, I feel like that I'd been living with them for so long, you know, every minute of every day, just in my thoughts and in my dreams. And I was mm -hmm. really committed to doing everything I can to restore their names, restore their humanity, to try to give them a voice. You know, I mean, I can never give them back their voice. Mm -hmm. But I, I thought it was a worthy effort to try. How does this relationship ultimately end? Or the confessions, do they wind down naturally? I know the Rangers said back off. Do you ever return to that? Um, I do return to them. And that was when I was, I started to look more deeply into the confessions. And that was when I was solving the Alice case and trying on a couple of others. And, you know, I, I mean, it's still ongoing. 
And how it ended, his confessions got, they just got more confused. There were so many, I think they had less value to me at the end. You know, I knew he was going to die at some point. And I thought, you know, would I be comfortable? I, you know, I would keep a list of questions. I'd be like, if this is the last time you get to talk to him, Hmm. what are the things you think are the most important to know? You're never going to get every last bit of information out of him. We'll be left with whatever we get here now. Mm-hmm. I got a text at about five in the morning on December 30th, 2020. And um, it said, pick up your phone. It was from one of the detectives involved in the case. And an hour later, I got a call from the prison. Uh, and and the individual on the phone told me that Sam Little had died of complications from COVID. And we're sorry for your loss. And I just didn't know what to say to that. I was like, no, don't apologize to me for this or feel like I need comfort. It was just kind of this sort of like shocking feeling of quiet because I'd been so hyper vigilant. You know, I carried my phone and a reporter's notebook around the house with me in a little side purse because God forbid I'd be outside with the dogs and miss a call Mm. from a detective. Or from Sam, if I missed a call, then I'd get punished for days. So, uh, you know, he was just very controlling in that way. Hmm. I don't think anyone could have done it. No. Well, I do think I have an understanding that you let them tell you who to be. Hmm. You know, I let him tell me what he sort of needed. And then I became that. Are the police grateful Or are they annoyed or sometimes both at your involvement in this? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes on all of that. Okay. Um, I think that I've had every kind of experience with law enforcement on this. There is a general resistance to the press from law enforcement. It tends to be an insular community. So uh, uh, that's a classic. You know, there's always going to be a back and forth, you know, especially when you're talking to the FBI, you know, they really have very specific questions you can ask and are monitoring you and you you have to go through a lot of people. And so, you know, I think that many of the cops were incredibly gracious with me. Like, I wouldn't say grateful. They were gracious. They helped me. I had a question for them, you know, how to look at something or how to understand something. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were very supportive for the most part or, you know, wouldn't talk to me at all. So Sam Little does one last thing before he dies. And I know that it must have been a, a shock to you. He leaves you everything, right? In his will? Yeah, He left me all of his possessions. I mean, that must have just been like, what the hell? Yes, but I knew that he was naming me his next of kin because I wanted to donate his brain to these neuroscientists at UC Irvine and at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also knew that. And then, you know, it it was the middle of COVID when he died. There were meat trucks at the coroner's office. His paperwork wasn't in order. And, you know, by the time I could have gotten his brain, it was useless. Hmm. So that was like a real shame. But I didn't know that that was going to happen. I just, I had hoped it would happen differently. You know, I was trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I'm like, listen, you guys, I'm not being a ghoul, but this brain needs to be kept at this temperature, Hmm. you know, until we work this out. 
but you know they weren't or weren't willing or couldn't comply at the time. So yeah, I was so surprised when the boxes of his stuff showed up. And then I tell this one story about Sam that I think really encompasses, you know, how many levels he was always working on. So at the very end, our last conversation before then he went to the medical unit and I I didn't talk to him again for 10 days before he died. He was like, you know, you sent me ramen, but you didn't send me a hot pot. You're just like these other bitches. You know how popular I am right now? Do you know how much I can make from, you know, just drawing my hand for somebody? (laughs) And then I got a letter in the mail from the prison and I opened it and he left me $1,097 and something cents. Hmm. And I was like, he had this money all along. He had all this money all along. What did all of that mean ultimately? I mean, just to end this, why did he do that? What did that symbolize to you? He was always on the make. You know, you, you you couldn't trust him at all. I could never trust him. I could only trust that the whatever barter I offered him at whatever time was valuable enough for him to hold up his end of the bargain or I'd be gone. Hmm. Blabbing your whole story to another reporter or I'll be gone. Clearly another illustration of a transactional relationship. That sounds like a, a terrible thing for me to say. Transactional relationship sounds so cold. But you are, in your book, are allowing people to understand just a little bit more about someone who affected so many people and caused terror for people, you know? And you also, this work, while I know it it has gone into a book that you benefit from, this work has helped close chapters for families, hopefully moving forward, because as you said, this is an open investigation, that must feel gratifying to a certain extent. But it also has to be still like, is the stink off of you yet from Sam Little and spending all that time listening to everything he had to say? Never. It really was the story of a lifetime in some ways. Um, You know, like that story you wait for but are scared of, you know, I was sure I couldn't do it. Hmm. I didn't feel equal to it. You know, I was so overwhelmed by all of a sudden dealing with all this law enforcement and legal issues and, you know, having my records subpoenaed. I thought this is going to be the one I can't do. It's going to be the one I fail. Hmm. You know, and I failed in in many ways. I made many mistakes. Um, And those are all there in the book, too. But, you know, I do think that it's a journey. And yes, we do want to see inside the mind of monsters, you know, and we also want to see into the heart of humanity, I hope that I can both bring attention to the issue of violence against women and the dismissal of violence against women, particularly marginalized women. Mm -hmm. That is my great hope. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. 
This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.